Jim, we're live now. Uh, sorry for interrupting you, Mr. Mayor, but uh, I am on the 117th edition of Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Ave Radio. This is the host, Paul Schneiderman. My uh, producer today is Lucius Tenebris. My special guest today is the mayor of Federal Way, Washington, former University of Washington football player and candidate now to be the elected King County prosecutor in the 2022 election season, Jim Farrell. We're on Facebook Live today. I the podcast will also be in audio format. I encourage people to uh, to submit some questions for, for Mayor Farrell today. Um, Jim, I, I'm going to get back to you in a minute. My podcast is also on YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbean. You can go to sportsuntoldpodcast.com. I encourage my listeners to click the like button, the like button regarding my show. Uh, comment and go to sportsuntoldpodcast.com. Of course, only positive comments. I, I but but but. Anyhow, though, all, all, all feedback's welcome. Um, as mentioned, he played football at the University of Washington in the 1980s. He's a recipient of the Brian Statt Memorial Award for the most inspirational non-letterman. Uh, Jim Farrell earned the 88 Bob Jarvis Award for the most inspirational lock-on player. He also was chosen by his teammates uh, to win the prestigious Guy Flaherty Award for the team's most inspirational player. And this is um, very fascinating because Jim was mostly a scout team player and he got an amazing uh, honor with his teammates. Jim, I want to share with you on a personal note, I've had a whole bunch of Husky football players on my show, former players that you know, Greg Lewis, Mark Patterson, Jimmy Rogers, Steve Palour, the list goes on. And it's, it's just so much fun to talk to UW football players. On a personal note, my late grandfather, Harry Schneiderman, is a 1928 letterman. So I get a little sentimental uh -huh. with UW yeah. football players. So I, I never played, but beyond Little League, but uh, guys like you, I think of my grandfather a lot when when uh, I interview Husky players. As I mentioned, Jim is currently the mayor of Federal Way, Washington, the ninth largest city in the state of Washington. Jim previously worked as a deputy and senior prosecutor uh, in King County, where he was in the front lines working on all sorts of criminal cases at trial. He was very active in the courtroom scene. Jim is now a candidate, as I mentioned, to be elected King County prosecutor. Primary will be in August, general election will be in November. Uh, we're definitely going to get into some sports today, but Jim, I can't help it. I'm going to talk some law and politics too. And uh, Jim, I think I really appreciate you coming on uh, Sports Untold today, also on Rainier Avenue Radio. Oh, thank you for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun today. Jim, you know, I think I had heard these stories years ago, and a, a colleague reminded me of them the other day. And did you really one time save one of your King County prosecuting attorney colleagues by doing CPR? And did you really chase a criminal defendant who ran outside of a courtroom? Did you, are those stories true? Are you like an action like that? <laughs> <laughs> you, I, well, I, I got Okay. First about the heart attack. Um, yes. What happened actually, it was a defense attorney. It was, it was uh, December 28th. It was a Monday after Christmas uh, back in 1998. And I was in court uh, with a with a fellow defense attorney, and we were in the presiding courtroom, and uh, it was first thing in the morning, a morning matter, and we're in that you know that glass partition area, and uh, a, a fellow defense attorney, we were on, we we're there on a case, um, all of a sudden um, uh, went into cardiac arrest and was on the floor, and they first brought in somebody who was there for an arraignment, this young woman who was there uh, to be charged with something. And she, they thought that she knew how to do CPR, but it was apparent after a few moments uh, that she didn't. So I finally had to take off my jacket. And before I knew it, I was mouth to mouth and giving face to face, uh, that, you know, uh, giving um, a CPR uh, uh, to uh, my fellow attorney who I, I, you know, had known quite well. And that was one of those moments where I, you know, when I was doing it, I thought, this is not how I thought the morning was going to go. Um, and uh, and he, as I can tell you, it was a surreal experience. The medics came in and, and he survived. Um, and uh, I received an award from the sheriff at the time. Now, the second time was in, in 2003. I was literally, I was at the Regional Justice Center. I was supervising a new, um, uh, a new prosecutor at the time. And I was, uh, you know, I was in a suit. I was in wingtips, and uh, uh, we were downstairs. And uh, I, we were, I, I was actually there for a homicide case, and we were watching a calendar go on, uh, you know, before us. And they were going to take somebody into custody for violating a no contact order. I won't get too far into the weeds here, but I, I as, as they were taking him into custody for violations, and I was looking at, you know, you, I always taught my deputies to have situational awareness. You know, does the defendant have a pen in, in their hand or a pencil? 
you know, are they going to run for the door? You know, just to have just to be aware of your surroundings. I was I was I wasn't even there for that case. And I looked at this guy and I thought he's going to bolt. And and sure enough, he did. And I don't know what I was thinking, but there was something so sort of outrageous about what he did. I just followed him and I was um, I you know ran up the stairs. This is at the RJC. It's like a little state capitol. And he ran across the rotunda and the guards kind of followed him at first. And then they thought, eh. And then um, he ran across the street, across 4th, and then over by the Bank of America. I'm still chasing him. I'm in hot pursuit. And so I get over to the Bank of America, and I'm starting to think, is this a good idea? And uh, and then all of a sudden, everybody in line at the ATM um, said, he's over there, he's over there. And uh, he was behind a power transformer. So I stopped traffic, cro- crossed the street. I still, Paul, I have no idea what I was thinking. You know, no cuffs. I, you know, I'm not a cop. So... I, I finally, I just go, hey, buddy, let's go. Let's go back to the court. You've already, you're already in trouble. Let's go back. And he comes up to me like he's going to hit me. And he kind of get gets in what they call a bladed stance. Right. And he kind of caught, and I'm like, dude, you don't need that kind of trouble. Just come with me. He goes, who are you? And I'm like, just come with me, buddy. Let's go. So finally, he turns around and runs the other way. And he had actually tried to get in the bed of a pickup truck. And that guy was a brand new pickup truck. And he didn't appreciate that. So the guy had pulled around and almost ran him over. His name was, uh, well, we don't need to get in names. But anyway, uh, he uh, he basically uh, uh, got in front of this guy and the guy you know, slapped the hood of the, of the truck and then kept running. So I told this guy, I, I, this guy driving the truck, I'm like, give me your cell phone. So I get on the cell phone with him and now I'm running with the cell phone. And, and, um, and so anyway, he goes in, he, he pops through Meeker and, and uh, I didn't know it at the time. So I pop, I pop through the Meeker and I'm looking around. And I'm like, there's the Kent diner. He's probably not there. I looked around and there's just like this little antique gift shop that all these little glass, you know, vestibules and shelves. And I went in there uh, and the two little ladies that were there goes, he's in the back and there's no back door. So he comes running back out. And it's, I'm between him and the doorway at this point. And I very undiplomatically told him to get down on the floor. Now, when it's told, and he did. So next thing you know, I saw these uh, uh, Kent police officers sort of skid up and they put him in cuffs and, and uh, they, they threw him into the back of the car. And so we're, they shut down Meeker. And uh, uh, at, point, at one point, a Kent police officer says, hey, he wants to talk to you. And I'm like, tell him he can talk to me in court. We're going to take him back there. So that's the story. Was he charged in the escape type of crime, anything like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I handled that. Well, Jim, I mean, move over Superman or Spider-Man. We're going to call you <laughs> Superman. You know, I, I mean, I think we're going to get something going here, you know, so that it's, it's, it, it's anyhow. Well, Jim, I, I, it's fun for you to go into a little more details on those two stories or kind of legendary stories around the legal community. Jim, you're currently the mayor of Federal Way, Washington, as I mentioned in the introduction. It's the ninth largest city in the state of Washington. What's going on in Federal Way these days? Why don't you just share with us what your job, what you do as mayor daily and a little bit about what's yeah. going on. Well, yeah, I led the effort to create the elected mayor, former government about 12 years ago, because I really felt like we needed to, there was a lot of things that needed to happen in regard to our downtown. Our downtown had lost, you know, the, the movie theater, the Toys R Us, there was a really sort of a, a, an exodus of businesses in our downtown core. And that the, not, not the joke, but the frequent refrain is, where is downtown Federal Way? So I led the effort and I got elected in 2013, and I've been mayor since 2014 now, to really help create create a sense of center and, and bring in businesses. So since that time, we created Town Square Park, a beautiful uh, four acre site with money we already had sitting in the bank. We didn't spend any extra money. Uh, we built a performing arts and events center, a $30 million facility uh, that's 90% paid off. Um, then we punched in where there was a 30 foot wall between where Town Square Park was and where the, the, the old Toys R Us, which is now the performing arts and events center, and we punched a, where, where there once was a wall. Now there's a 300 foot long, beautiful staircase. We're bringing in um, light rail that's, that uh, it was gonna go down Pack Highway. And we had put a hundred million dollars in regard to investments in up and down Pack Highway over the course of 20 years. I said, no, 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 you can't put it down Pack Highway. You, what you've got to do is bring it down alongside the freeway and then uh, bring it right into downtown right next to the existing place. And so that's going to happen in two short years. So that's where we've been recruiting businesses and, and the malls redeveloping. And, and um, you know, we got an Amazon uh, right there with the, the building formerly known as Sears. And we've got a Dick's Drive-In coming in right next door to that. So a lot of, a lot of stuff happening. 
Oh, stop going third away. And, and why do you want to leave as federal way mayor and become the King County prosecutor? And my wife had the same question. She's like, God, Jim, you love this job. Are you really sure? And, and I can tell you this. I, I had become really concerned about the, uh, as we all have been, about the safety of this county. And I, and, uh, you know, while I, I worked in the prosecutor's office previously, I just think the prosecutor's office is just going in the wrong direction. And there's a real serious problem that I think people in the community are unaware of, that there are 5,000 unfiled felony cases at the King County Prosecutor's Office. 230 of those are homicide cases that are sitting in a drawer. 500 of those are sexual assault cases. So there's just a real, they, they just, there's been a real break with the cities. If you take a look at my website at jimferrell.org, you'll see dozens and dozens of mayors um, and um, uh, police officer guilds that are supporting me. And, and you know, my, my opponent's the current chief of staff. Um, the, the current prosecutor has decided not to run for reelection. And I think if you take a look at those endorsements, that really represents a real um, schism and a, and a break between um, you know, the, the people that should be represented and, uh, and that are not. Um, and I think they want change. They want people held accountable. Do you enjoy your job as mayor? You just want to maybe try a different office. So try different. Yeah, I really feel like I, I'm not sure. I, I I think that things have gotten so serious that I actually I felt like I needed to do this for my city and for all the cities that I, I really felt a sense of obligation because I think we're just going in the wrong direction. They've they've launched some things that without any notice to the cities, without any input to the cities. And um, I think they're they're going in the wrong direction. I in it'll it'll um, really have a detrimental effect on the safety of the of the region. Um, we actually got together with the uh, the current prosecutor and his leadership several times, and just not only are they uh, doubling down on some of these uh, diversion programs that aren't diversion; they're just you know a referral to a private groups with no checkback. They're going to start implementing that with adults, and I just think that's just wrongheaded. Jim, you sort of answered this question, but I, I'm going to ask it sort of in a different way. If you win and become the elected King County prosecutor, you will join the likes of Chuck Carroll, Chris Bailey, Norm Mailing, Dan Satterberg, and all these prosecutors, I and mean, of course prosecutors before Chuck Carroll, those were before our times, um, kind of leave their, legacy, leave their legacies as King County prosecutor. Jim, if you win and become the King County prosecutor, how do you want historians to look back at the Jim Farrell years uh, after you leave that office? What do you want your legacy to be? Firm but fair. I think um, if I were going to sum it up, I mean, what I loved about working for, for Norm, who is just a legendary prosecutor who hired me back in 98, is that he, and he really, I'm, I really feel like I'm running a restoration campaign. This office, the prosecutor's office, has a storied um, uh, and, and re renowned background. It, it doesn't now, um, regionally, and, and, but nationally, it was really one of the leaders in regard to the creation of a specialized special assault unit. Uh, the uh, drug court, those kinds of things. And so I think that we need to restore the office as a leader. The King County prosecutor, you should be, uh, you know, the voice uh, needs to be heard in Olympia uh, when, when reforms are being, uh, you know, uh, discussed and, and debated. And so I really think that, um, uh, I, I think that my legacy that I, I, I would hope that would people would believe that I, I really want to make sure I have a, the very first thing I put on my website was I believe in second chances. And I think having had hundreds of jury trials, I knew, I know that people do as well. And I, I believe in second chances, but not revolving doors where the same people are committing the crimes over and over and over. And you need to be focused on justice and transparency and accountability. And I think that ultimately, I think this the, the current trend, whether it's, you know, uh, progressive prosecutors in, in Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, well, no longer in San Francisco, but also Los Angeles with Gascon, um, uh, you know, there's, there, there are needed reforms. On the other hand, though, it's a balancing act, and you need to make sure that, that people feel, people deserve to be safe and to feel safe. And so I think that people will, th will say that under my administration, we course corrected. And, and that we've achieved a balance about helping people and getting people back on track, but also holding them accountable. And you're not doing, any, you're not doing offenders any favor by looking the other way either. They're, they're not living their best lives and they're, they're disconnected from their families and, and, and their community. And so it's about helping them too and treating them with dignity and respect, but firmly. 
Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio on the 117th edition with former UW football player and candidate for King Camp Prosecutor Jim Farrell. I encourage listeners to like, comment, subscribe, and go to sportsuntoldpodcast.com. Happy to take some questions from the audience today for, uh, for Jim. Jim, um, Governor Inslee, back in about 2014, issued a moratorium on death penalty cases. And the Washington Supreme Court later in 2018 ruled the death penalty is unconstitutional as applied under Washington state law. However, the state Supreme Court did not rule out the possibility that the state legislature could enact a new death penalty statute in the future. If the death penalty becomes legal again in Washington state, Jim, how do we handle death penalty decisions uh, as King County prosecutor? Well, I do think that there are circumstances, you know, with the Green River Killer, in my opinion, uh, should have received the death penalty. I think when you know, the individual who, you know, shot and killed four police officers, I, I think that there are there are the rare times in the criminal justice system in which that's necessary. Um, and when you have, uh, you know, those type of egregiously, there was the Carnation case where multiple people were murdered. And, and so, you know, where those aggravating circumstances exist, uh, where you just get the, just, I mean, you know, the Green River Killer killed over 40 women. And um, I, I really think that, that we need to probably go back and, and have uh, the law be able to address those rare instances in which it's necessary. But I, I, I do think it is. So you, you disagree with Governor Inslee's decision 2014 to issue a moratorium on all capital punishment cases? I do. I do. Um, Jim, this doesn't come up as much in conversations about prosecutors' offices and district attorneys' offices around the country. We, we hear a lot of attention, which is, of course, necessary about the criminal division of these offices. But, but many prosecutors' offices, including King County, also have a civil division where many important cases can be decided. For the listeners, civil cases are non-criminal uh, cases that can involve issues over property or injuries, uh, matters like that. Can you tell us a little bit about the civil division of the King County Prosecutor's Office? And what do you have in mind as you, uh, if you get elected and run the civil division of prosecutor's office as well? Well, thank you. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's the in, in the prosecutor's office, there's the criminal division and there's the civil division. You know, I think it and also I think it's it's critically important that we always keep in mind who the client is. The client is not the government. The client is the people uh, that we represent. And um, and I think that that has to be, you know, whether it's a land use issue, whether it's a a, a tort, I think, uh, you know, a, a personal injury case, those kinds of things. You always need to keep in mind, you know, who we're working for, um, and I, you know, obviously you want to make sure. One of the things I was always impressed by is the level of of legal talent um, and really people that could be making a lot more money in the private sector, but they want to do public service. So I, I know that you know the feedback that I've heard is that there's a lot of contracting out to private firms, either for litigation or for other uh, other type of matters, and then that really that 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 like who your actual client is really gets lost in translation in which there are, um, uh, you know, number one, you're accumulating cost because you're, you're contracting out. That shouldn't be done. We've got, we, we've got a stable of lawyers uh, ready and competent to be able to handle those, but also to keep in mind uh, who we're working for and, and making sure that if it's a property rights issue, whether it's a, um, you know, a land use issue, um, that that we don't engage in sharp what the, what's referred in as you know in, in uh, certain cases sharp practices or um, you know uh, representing um, you know the county is it, you have a tremendous amount of power I think actually that's in both in the criminal division and the civil division we always need to remember that prosecutors wield a tremendous amount of authority and that should be it should be used sparingly uh, and judiciously and and with you know and compassionately. So that's where I think we need to, you know, really, uh, and, and watch the pocketbooks as well, making sure that we're doing things in a financially and, and fiscal, uh, fiscally sound manner. If you are elected prosecutor, do you welcome dialogue with the uh, plaintiff's personal injury bar? Do you welcome having? Of course. Well, I actually represented them in Olympia uh, in 1995. I was actually the, uh, uh, I, I, first I worked for the state medicals right after law school. You know, uh, Paul, what it's like when you get, get done with law school. I worked for state medical at first, and then my my job right after that, and I'd, I'd worked in Olympia for a couple of sessions um, in the state Senate. 
Um, and then I uh, actually lobbied with the Washington State trial lawyers in the 1995 legislative session. So yeah, they're old friends. Uh, in fact, I still go to some of their CLEs because uh, that actually really helped me when I was when, when all the jury trials that I had. I would always go to this uh, CLE called Trial by the Masters, and you know Luvera and Kessler and all those you know those yeah great great trial attorneys and and really uh, and so I learned a lot actually that uh, I, I have certain things that I do when I'm picking a jury. Do I sound like I'm still prosecuting? Uh, the certain things that I do that that really help. And you know what it was is that Paul, it's all about trust. And it's all about letting people know you care about them, you, you, you respect them, you treat, the, you treat the jurors and everybody with respect. And you know, and all of those jury trials, even sometimes the strongest cases I had, when I would talk to the jurors afterwards, they would always tell me it was about, you know, that it did come down to trust. Did they trust the witness? Did they trust me? And that's really what it's about. Yeah, we're going to get to your, your football career in a minute. This is a sports-based show, but we hit on some other issues on Sports Untold. And I, I real quickly, I believe you, you were a White House intern for the first President Bush at one time. Can you share a little bit about that experience? Yeah, and I won't get, uh, you know, as you can tell, I can tell, I tell a story here and there, and I can go on for a while. Oh, fun but stories, fun stories. I, I got that job as an intern because of a tie-dye t-shirt. I was, I was in Atlanta. Do you remember, do you remember back in the early 90s, when Dan Quayle showed up to the, to the National Bar Association, the ABA, the American Bar Association, and said there were too many lawyers in America. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I was in Atlanta running for national office with the American Bar Association Law Student Division. Every law school in the country was there. I met this great guy from Jackson, uh, from Jackson uh, Mississippi School of Law. He, he was really a fun guy, and he had this really thick Southern accent like my dad did. And um, we became fast friends and, and uh, he had interned. Um, well, I didn't know it at the time. So we hung out in Atlanta when I was running and I, I lost that race, came back three months later and won another one. And um, so I was like the secretary treasurer of the uh, ABA law student division uh, for two years, a year and a half. And so anyway, I go back to, I was at Gonzaga, I go back to Spokane, um, but dur during that conference we were hanging out, I went for a run. I don't know what I was thinking in the, in the, middle of August in, in Atlanta, about passed out. And when I went back to the hotel, uh, uh, David wasn't in his traditional uh, Southern seersucker suit. He was in a tie-dye t-shirt, had a peace symbol on it. And uh, it said um, uh, Mississippi College of Law. And, and on the back, it said, make love, not law review. And I'm like, I was uh, at the time, I was a you know conservative young guy. And I'm like, oh my God, I've got to have that t-shirt. So um, he says, oh, I'll send it to you. And so a couple months go by, I'm back at Gonzaga and um, um, no t-shirt. So I call up David and I'm like, David, um, hey, dude, you're gonna send me my t-shirt? Cause I was an intramural basketball and I figured people would think it'd be funny for me as this uh, young Republican to have this tie-dye t-shirt right. with the tight with a peace symbol on it. And he said in his thickest Southern drawl, I'm sorry, James, I haven't been able to get you that. He says, I'm off to see the president this week but I'll get it to you when I get back. So there's a long pause on the call. And I'm like, the president of what? And he goes, oh, I didn't tell you. When I was an undergrad at LSU, I interned for the vice president, uh, um, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. And uh, make a long story short, uh, well, sort of, um, he uh, 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 hand delivered my application. And I, a couple of interviews later and some referrals by some US senators, I find myself sitting in the uh, Old, uh, the second floor of the ceremonial office of the vice president of the United States. I worked for free for four months, wow. but I had all the Diet Coke I could drink every day, and, and uh, it was a surreal experience. Did you get to know President Bush at all? You know, I met him uh, uh, on two separate occasions. I was there when uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin uh, visited the White House, and, I, uh, they, um, and so we were on the uh, ellipse, uh, or the, on the South Lawn there, uh, and I was in another room with him, um, but I spent most of my time with the vice president at the time. And uh, that was a fascinating experience. My first day was the Murphy Brown speech. Um, and uh, yeah. I worked in the chief of staff's office and the legal counsel office, but the chief of staff was a, a man named Bill Crystal. And he was sort of a domestic Henry Kissinger. Right. He'd worked in, uh, uh, he'd worked in- I follow uh, him on Twitter, Bill, Bill Crystal. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. And, and uh, yeah, so I worked with him, learned a lot from him. His father was the, the founder of the neocon movement. It was interesting. It was fascinating. It was surreal. There were, oftentimes I'd find myself in meetings and I'd be like, 
how did I get here? It was fascinating. What a great source. I, we're going to get to sports in a couple minutes, but I did get a question from the audience here that I'm going to ask you. Bruce Bush, who I know, another Roosevelt guy, he's an attorney. Bruce has a question for you. As a prosecutor, are there any laws you would choose not to prosecute, such as the event of a national ban on abortion, if a national ban on abortion was imposed? I believe that's Bruce's question. Yeah, I, I really, you know, I think that is such, it's really the, just let me say, first of all, First of all, I want to say, you know, I support a woman's right to choose. I'm pro-choice. I would also say that even though it's a nonpartisan race, I am a Democrat. Um, and but I think the office is nonpartisan for a reason. Um, I am pro-choice. Um, I, I do not think that we should be prosecuting people for, um, you know, uh, for uh, seeking uh, something that I believe is a, is a constitutional right. It's really the first time in history that we've seen a rollback from something that has been considered a constitutional right, uh, first established in Griswold with the right to privacy and now extended under Roe. Um, and I, I think it's, it's, you know, this country is already so divided. Uh, it, I think it, it makes me sad that, that we're just, that, that this division is there. I, I don't think there's any chance of, of Washington state, um, you know, outlawing, uh, outlawing abortion because the people of this, of the state uh, voted for it previously. Uh, but I, I would not prosecute. Uh, people for for that i just wouldn't i wouldn't do that i'm going to get one more question that i have for you if you're elected king camp prosecutor jim i worked downtown for over 20 years i grew up spending a lot of time downtown my father and grandfathers worked downtown i i like cities i like downtowns um i still go downtown and sometimes i go to the king county law library i'm a old school i still go in there sometimes and get books. me too but I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, Jim, though, there's a lot of safety issues right now on 3rd and 4th Avenue by the courthouse, on 3rd and, and James area. People have been assaulted. Many folks in the community just don't want to go down there. Jim, if you become the elected King Camp prosecutor, do you have any special steps in mind that will add further protections in that courthouse area? Because a lot of people are scared to go inside the <laughs> courthouse right now and exit it. Well, it's truly outrageous. You know, I worked in that building. I love that building. I, you know, I, I really, I love the old pictures of Seattle and you've, you've seen the old pictures of the courthouse and, and um, people have an absolute right to be able to go into their public buildings. Number one, to go to work, to go to jury service, to, to show up. We've got the King County Council on the top floor of that building. Um, we've got the, you know, we've got jail uh, facilities up there. We've got courtrooms where justice is occurring and in process. So I, I am, I, you know, I uh, appreciate the fact that several of our King County Superior Court judges um, have been absolutely, uh, uh, you know, the current presiding judge and several other judges have been um, insisting and demanding uh, safety. I know our King County Council member here, Pete von Reichbauer, has demanded that. Um, our King County prosecutor has been just absent as, uh, you know, just in regard to safety at the courthouse. And, it, and I think, you know, this position really needs to be a leader and demand that employees, jurors, and people that come to do business on behalf of the community um, be able to do so in a safe manner. And it, it, it's not rocket science. You, they just need to deploy more resources down there. Uh, work with our fellow former Husky, um, uh, Bruce Harrell, uh, Mayor Harrell, uh, to make sure that that's there, but also the King County Sheriff's Office and, and make sure that people can come and go uh, safe, uh, safely. So if you're elected um, prosecutor, you'll be proactively proactively involved in that the courthouse safety issues. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's absolutely essential that that occur. We need to be vocal about it. We need to lead. Jim, I'm going to move to sports now. We could talk law and politics uh, forever, but I, I, I may have one or two more questions. Uh, but let, let me tell the story of how you became a UW uh, walk-on player. How did the whole experience emerge, Jim? Well, I... Uh, you know, I, uh, I grew up in Yelm, Washington. The tallest building in town was the water tower. And uh, it was a double A. So we were in the Black Hills League. We played Capital, Olympia, North Thurston, Aberdeen, Hoquiam, Shelton, uh, Timberline, Tumwater. That, that was the, I, I'm sure I forgot. Oh, North Thurston. Uh, it was a good, it was a good league, right? It was a competitive league. And some of the, some of the folks that I uh, played with um, at, at, in some of those schools went on uh, to play college football. Um, I made the decision uh, that I wanted to uh, play football at the University of Washington as a walk-on. I knew that there was a great walk-on program. My plan was uh, to do essentially what the Texas A&M did, which is, you know, to, you know, they had their, uh, before long before we had our 12th man, they had their, their walk-on program called the 12th man. Um, and my, uh, my idea was to, you know, get on a kickoff team 
cause a few wrecks and, and uh, get Don James to put me uh, on the kickoff team. And uh, it was a tremendous experience. And, and uh, it was, uh, it was very daunting. I, you know, we played case in point, we were, you know, I, I played in a grass field. We would play Elma. That was probably, you know, and, and the bow in the field in my senior year, you could barely see the tops of the, uh, of the heads of the other players. So that gives you an idea of where I came from. And, and uh, uh, so walking on to the Husky stadium, the first few times was daunting. My first game as, a, as to being on the field was the 1985 ice bowl game where Chris Chandler marched the field down from the 10 yard line against SC um, and, uh, and, and, you know, scored the touchdown and won the game. So, but my whole, my thought as a walk on coming through the tunnel and there's snow on the ground is dear God, don't slip on the ice as we're, as you're going through the tunnel and, and up on the ramp. But it is one of those surreal experiences going down that tunnel uh with the chance and uh uh and just that 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 angry dog pack bursting onto the field um and it was it was really a a, a tremendous experience and coach james was you know awesome big deal for a young kid to play in husky stadium paul shaman hosts the sports untold podcast 117th edition also on rainier avenue ready with jim farrell i encourage people to feel free to ask some questions and and uh to jim um, Jim, you mentioned Chris Chandler. I actually had a question involving Chris Chandler. Would you say he was the most, I don't know, impactful player you play with with his long NFL career? Would, would you put Chandler in that? Of course, Greg Lewis, too, who I know well. I mean, how right. who's the most impactful Husky player you play with? Chandler, Lewis, throw oh, That's a good question. Um, you know, actually, you know, I, well, I was contemporaries with Greg, and also, you know, I was, uh, 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 Chris was a few years ahead of me and he was a great, great leader. And he did have a long NFL career. Uh, there were so many great guys, you know, who actually, who doesn't get enough attention is Martin Harrison at a Newport high school. He played with the, he played with the Vikings. He played with the 49ers, Dennis Brown. I remember when Dennis Brown was a senior in high school and they brought him out. They brought him in early, uh, for a uh, spring ball, uh, before, and he played, he started as a freshman. And he, as you all know, he uh, went down to uh, San Francisco and played well there. Uh, Lilo Lang, who started off, I love that one of the greatest names in Husky football history, started as an option quarterback in South Central Los Angeles, and then they converted him to uh, defensive back. He was a great ball player. I think he played at uh, Denver. Um, so, so the, the, you know, Kerry Conklin was there. Mark Brunel and I used to go to chapel together. He was a great quarterback. Um, you know, and you know who I really, I really admired um, and, and what I haven't heard much about lately, but uh, Bo Yates was probably the best linebacker, just form wise, I'd ever seen. It was just perfection in motion. Um, and I learned a lot from watching him. He started as a true freshman, uh, number three, um, just a true natural. Uh, so I think that's, there were so many, David Real, you know what, what always impressed me about David Real was he would knock you on your back in a, just in a second, great form, very quiet, very respectful, um, a great guy. So a lot, of, a lot of great guys I played with. I suppose if we're looking at, at long-term NFL careers as part of the analysis of who was the most impactful, Chandler and Brunel have to be up there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know what, what I really always, they were great leaders. They were good people. You know, the, the walk-on locker room, was down the hall. It's where the scale was. We had to get, not only did you have to get taped every morning or well, before practice, uh, but you always had to get weighed in. And so the walk-on locker room is where, the, is, is where the AstroTurf stops and the gray linoleum starts. And then there's the scale. And so for years, I could guess a person's weight within a few pounds because I, my, my locker was where that huge line had been and they would note everybody's weight uh, every day. And I would do my homework, you know, as I was, you know, getting ready for practice, uh, reading my books. And, and so, um, you know, the, the Vince Lombardi quotes and the pictures and the mightier the men are purple and gold. They stopped at the walk-on locker room. Um, and that was a great experience. Now, my last two years, I was in the varsity locker room. And, and that, was, that was awesome. And uh, uh, with uh, Chris, uh, uh, Jim Clifford and uh, uh, the, the younger Hoffman, Dave Hoff, or the older Hoffman, excuse me, um, and uh, a lot of those guys. Oh, Lincoln Kennedy. We didn't mention Lincoln Kennedy. Kennedy, right. Very he was a, and I remember when he was, I was sort of the head of the, 
the junior varsity or the, the walk-on crew by my senior year. So you had Lincoln Kennedy, uh, Hoffman, Clifford, uh, all those guys. And they, you know, they were, you know, they ended up being five-year seniors. And so uh, they, I got to kind of play right next to those guys. They were great. Well, I, so I never knew the walk-ons had, had a separate locker from the University of Washington. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, and then uh, eventually, if you kind of earn your way into some depth uh, uh, and, you know, get knocked around enough, they, they bring you into the varsity locker room. Jim, I've had, as I mentioned, I've had a lot of Husky players, former players on my show. It's not a UW-only sports show by any chance, but, you know, living, being a UW guy, and UW's in my backyard here in Lesha, of course, I'm going to have some Husky talk on my show. I've had Greg Lewis, Jimmy Rogers, Mark Patterson, yourself, and Don James has come up a lot on my show. Ed Cunningham, the list goes on of uh, Husky players I've had on my show. And I'm going to ask you maybe a somewhat different question about Don James I have not asked before. Do you think he would have been a good NFL coach? Oh, it's a great, you know, I've thought a lot about that. That's a great, he was such a great man. Uh, well, let me just say this. Don James would have been successful at anything he tried. And you know what I learned from Don James? Attention to detail. And what I mean, and I learned so much about that. A couple things about Don James. If, if, if people haven't seen it, they need to get a hold of the book called The Thursday Speeches. Um, and uh, it, uh, the, the author is one of the original James gang. It's all about the preparation that started on Thursday nights and the very almost erudite um, and very hopeful and visionary speeches that he would give. Uh, I always, I give it as a gift uh, to people. And I, um, I'm, in fact, I gave one to Mayor Harrell right when he got elected because I, I don't think he had had a copy. And I think those really, it, they are examples of, of speeches he gave during his entire time there. When one of the things that I noticed about the details, I learned this as a prosecutor, the details will kill you. And Don James, even during the time, you know, before we got separated into our, into, into our um, uh, position drills, you know, I'd go, I'd go with the outside backers and um, the kickers would be there. And Don James, coach James um, would have his, would keep track of the seconds and the fractions of seconds it took to snap the ball to get it to the holder and to get it. And he would keep track of that methodically. He was a student of the game and, but he was a stickler for details because, and he was a real tactician. Um, and I love the fact that he, you know, he, as we all know, re recall, he had the tower, the Bear Bryant tower, it was his, but he would roll it out. Now, when he came out of that tower, there would be a problem. Uh, so like <laughs> when we get a chance, I'll tell you about, uh, uh, you know, something I did that got him out of the tower. Um, but he was, and he ran the program, I think, uh, methodically and thoughtfully and with a visionary influence. Now, the question though is ultimately, would that have translated into the professional, probably old school? He was a Chuck Knox, um, you know, type of, uh, of you know, in a, in a Vince Lombardi type coach that was tough. Um, there was one time, I'll tell you a really funny story. We're getting ready to go to the Independence Bowl in 87. And there was some talk. Uh, the captains went to go see Coach James because uh, uh, that was, recall, if you will, that that was uh, before um, uh, uh, Christmas. It was one of the earlier bowl games. We played Tulane in the Independence Bowl. And um, a lot of people were studying for their finals. And the, the captains went down to Coach James's office and they were talking about a general strike about the number of practices we were having in, in lead up. And it's told to me, this is hearsay uh, council, uh, but it's told to me that coach James got up during that, leaned over his desk and said, whoever's not on the field in the next 30 minutes is not going, period. And that was Don James. Um, and I think, so the, the answer to your question is, he would have been legendary. He would have been detailed. He wouldn't have taken any garbage. Had Skip Hall on as well. We talked about Don James. I got a, a little follow-up to, to you on that. Yeah. How would Don James have handled professional players with contracts and all that kind of stuff? Was he just more of a natural with college kids? No, I, I, I do think that he was just like I, he, he would have been firm but fair. I think that he would have been um, – he would have understood that it was a profession. But I think somewhere along the line, we get into this touchy-feely business – he was old school in the old school sense. You remember Jack Patera? I mean, you know, and things change over time. I loved Patera. You know, he was willing to do different.
different things and because he needed to right with the expansion teams but i i think that he was uh coach james was a real student of the game but i think he was always professional he was always very very professional um and and i think that he would have established clear lines of communications the key to him and success would be establishing respect and communication and anybody what he wouldn't have tolerated are some of the showboats that are in it for the you know that that we're in it for themselves and not for the team. It was always about the team. And, and, and people like that can kill your program. It's an interesting alternative history analysis of Don James, how he would have been as an NFL coach. And your, your, your input of that question is fascinating. Um, Jim, you won the guy, hope I'm pronouncing the last name correctly, Guy Flaherty Award. Yep. And I want you to brag a little bit, Jim. Tell us how you won that award when you were primarily a scout player. Tell us what, what you did. I mean, it's a major UW football recognition award tell us how you got it well it was a surprise I, I was deeply honored by it it sits in my office right now and I, I see it every day um so okay I would say probably one of the most devastating things that ever happened to me in my life um was uh the last padded practice of the uh 86 season we were, we were practicing for um uh, WSU for the Apple Cup and on the Wednesday, which is the light, we, Thursdays, we used to go light, you know, no shoulder pads, you know, you know it was kind of just a, what they sweats run through on a Thursday and lead up to the game. On the Wednesday, <clears throat> I was playing hard, you know, and, you know, flying around, causing wrecks, tried to block a punt. And, um, and I was going all out and somebody, and I came up the middle and somebody came up from the outside and ran right through my knee and immediately tore three ligaments. Um, they rolled me off the field. I had surgery at Northwest hospital within, you know, within 48 hours. Um, so I can tell you this, number one, talk about leadership, coach James, even though I was a walk-on from Yelm high, uh, coach James was there when I came out of surgery. I mean, incredible. really incredible. Yeah, awesome. Right. And then, um, so I came back and I, I wrote him a letter, uh, after that. I said, I love, I love that story. Yeah, thank you. And I, uh, I wrote him a letter from that hospital bed, and I said I'm coming back. And I played two more years. So they, uh, <laughs> I got to tell you a funny story. So they got they they put me through rehab. So the summer of '87, uh, I was in in rehab not only for my for my knee but for my back. I there were times in which before the knee injury they'd have to invert me and and uh, you know put you on hooks so you can kind of stretch out your back. So um, uh, I, I got my back worked on and in my knee. But I would be on this orthotron doing 400 reps a day. And I was determined. And here was my thought, Paul. Not only did I really feel obligated to go back to play, I knew that if I didn't get back into top physical shape at this stage of my life, I probably never would. And I had sort of, I, I thought, this is probably the best shape I'm ever going to be in my life. Let's do it right now. So I came back, played in 87, went to the Independence Bowl, and then in 88. And, um, but I'll tell you this, a couple, couple things. Um, coming back from that devastating knee injury was probably, you know, I've, I've graduated college, law school, been a member of the rock. I am more proud of that than almost anything I've ever done in my life. And, um, and so I played two more years. And I think people, my, my colleagues uh, on the team, I, they knew that, uh, uh, that when they lined up against me, I was going to give it everything I had. And I played tough. I uh, probably averaged a, a fight you know, at least once a week or two, you know, at 190, 95 pounds, uh, you gotta, you gotta play like you, like you mean it. And uh, uh, so I think that there was a, there was a mutual respect. I showed up every day. And I, I was a younger Jim Farrell. You don't strike me as a guy with getting fights now, but, but that was, <laughs> that was a different Jim Farrell, wasn't it? It was, it was cathartic. I, you know, I, I remember, uh, I, you know, there was something about it. I think there's, there's something about putting on the helmet and having the pads and, and, and you know what, what it was, is I really felt like it was my job to prepare the team for Saturdays. And uh, I remember the way I met Tony, you remember Tony Covington, number 39, he was from Portland. Uh, he was the wingman on the, on the uh, PAT team. And so the way I met him my freshman year is I kept knocking him over and trying to get through, you know, I wasn't phoning it in. I mean, I, I was there to play. And, and Tony, I remember like I, I was a true freshman and he runs up to me, you know, cause you got your laundry bag every day and you, you had these huge bobby pins and the net bags and you throw everything in the laundry after practice. And he runs up to me and he goes, are you 88? And, and I thought, Jesus, are we going to go right here? And, uh, 
and and uh, I said, yeah, I, I'm Jim. What, and, and he goes, I'm Tony. And he goes, keep doing what you're doing. It's making me better. And that's why I did what I did. Great compliment. Great compliment. Love, love those stories. Well, we've got another question. When Farrell and Schneiderman talk, a few other attorneys are listening to here. Um, our friend George Shearson has a great question for you. George wants to know, Hugh McElhaney, legend, just passed away. Should you dub do something to honor him? Great question from George. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think you're talking about lasting impact. I think, I think Hugh is probably, probably the best Husky. I guess a long list. I mean, with Warren Moon and all the, I mean, all the, the, the players that came before, and it's a tremendously long list, but I, but clearly I think that, uh, but I think you do need to be careful um, because there are quite a number of folks that, that have made lasting contributions, but yes, they need to do something. Jim, you got 10, 15 more minutes. Of course. Great, great. Paul Schneiderman, again, host of Sports Untold, 117th edition Sports Untold podcast. Go to sportsuntoldpodcast.com. And my show is also on YouTube and some other outlets, uh, Spotify and so forth. Jim, what advice do you give to a young Jim Farrell? I asked the same question to my prior guest, Noah Neubauer, who was a walk-on UW basketball player. Do, do you tell a young Jim Farrell, go to a small college and play a lot and probably get some playing time and have that experience? Or do you tell a young Jim Farrell, go walk on a D1 program and give it a run? What, what advice do you give to a young, a young Jim Farrell? It's a great question. I've thought a lot about that. Um, number one, I wouldn't tell him anything. I, I would, I think... You know, I, I what I would say is, I I wouldn't tell what what would would happen in the future. Other than follow your dreams, stick to your guts, stick to your principles, never quit. Um, so I think um, you know, I, I think back there's a there's a moment, really probably the hinge point of my life, that occurred in Montlake parking lot, and it was the very first day that I walked on, and I'll never forget uh, showing up to that parking lot, my royal blue '78 Chevy Nova park in the Montlake parking lot. I, it was a walk-on meeting. It was a hot blistering day in the, um, uh, you know, in, in August of, of 1985. And I got out of my car <clears throat> and I started walking toward Husky stadium with the stadium looming. And I'm like, I stopped about 20 feet after my car. And I'm like, what am I doing? What, what, this is not, this is not rooted in reality. What am I doing? And I turn around, I go back to my car and I do that three times. So I think about that moment a lot, and it really dictated the course of my life. I think actually, you know, not quitting, making the decision to do that which you believe is beyond your grasp. That's the difference in life. That's what I've tried to do uh, every day of my life. And I think that that decision um, to lock the car and go back and, and walk those thousand steps. In fact, actually, I'm working on a, on a writing project right now called The Thousand Steps. Um, because those thousand steps changed the course of my life. Jim, another part of your life that I was reading about is you lost your father at a very young age. And your, I think your mom seemed like a really incredible woman raising you and your siblings. Tell us how that impacted you. Yeah, I think it really, um, it really um, helped me understand the struggles of working class people and people that uh, you know, didn't have a lot. You know, we were we were originally raised in the Lakewood area, um, and then after my father passed away, my mother moved my twin brother and I out to Yelm. And I, you know, so we were originally in Lakewood. I would have gone to you know, Lakes High School uh, had we stayed in Lakewood. And but I think that Yelm was. I think our mother wanted to get us, um, uh, you know, into a nice into a nice home, into a nice, uh, uh, really sort of a, a good school district. It really gave me the confidence where, um, you know. Uh, I played football, basketball, baseball, student government, um, and excelled in, in a lot of different things and, and really gave me a firm basis to, and my mom did that. And I think that I became a prosecutor in large part because I wanted to help people. And, and I, I know that sounds interesting, but I, I think really helping victims, uh, you know, and, and helping um, even the people that are accused to get back on track. And so, uh, but I, I, I've often found myself being very compassionate toward people, uh, not only that are victims, but are charged, because I know that sometimes they've had life circumstances that have brought them uh, to a place. And, and it's all about uh, learning. And, uh, and I think, you know, I was in the program, you know, sometimes I think the most important thing that can happen to you are setbacks and challenges. 
they really uh, the knee injury. I I received that award because of the knee injury and and my response to that, which was to come back, play two more years, and not let that defeat me. I think actually being there in 1988, the first we when I my senior year was the year that the bowl game streak was broken. We didn't go to a bowl game my senior year in 1988, right. and that was really fascinating. My first year in '85 was post was the post Orange Bowl year. We were so deep that we could the walk-ons could barely get in during rotations. Now, three years later, in 1988, when we didn't go to a bowl game, there were so few walk-ons that there were barely there was barely anybody to come in to relieve me. And I think it was it, it taught me a lot about um, loyalty. You know, really counts when um, a loyalty and perseverance and attitude matters not when times are great when you win national championships but when you face adversity and those are the best lessons i've ever learned jim these are two questions i've asked about every guest since late 2019 there's my these are my two favorite questions i'm going to put mayor farrell on the spot here um who's a living sports figure it can be a general manager a player an owner someone who's still with us you love to interview or chat with and who's a deceased sports figure in history um that you loved it, you would have loved to have interviewed or chatted with. Oh, God, that's great. The answer to the second question is Vince Lombardi. I, I really, uh, I, I think, you know, and he was an individual that, you know, what's interesting, if you look back at that 1958 New York Giants team, Landry coached the offense and Vince Lombardi coached the defense. Uh, no, 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 excuse me, it was the other way around. It was Lombardi coached the offense and Landry coached the defense. Think about that coaching tree Amazing. from the 58 New York Giants. Uh, I, and I also think that um, he was, I, I think there was, there was a great thing I learned uh, or, or heard once uh, from the legendary coach of um, uh, the Raiders, uh, John Madden, where he, uh, right when he was getting started, he was a junior college coach, junior college coach. Uh, he thought he knew everything he needed to learn about football. And he went to hear Vince Lombardi talk about the sweep. And he, after six hours, he walked out of the room and, and realized, I don't know anything. And you know what it was? The, what I what, what's fascinating about about the way that sweep worked uh, for the Packers was that everybody knew it was coming. Here it comes, but it was just like a finely tuned watch, and and he just dared people to stop him. And he was tough, but but his players um, loved him. And I, I read a book by Jim Cramer, who was a, the legendary guard out of Idaho, right. um, and and he was really tough on Cramer. And and I think that. Um, but I think that that's really, he learned a lot from, from, uh, from coach Lombardi. And I think that, uh, that's really, it, it's the, it's the people that hold you to a higher standard and demand excellence. So you picked um, Lombardi, great. Yeah. Another guest asked Lombardi, Skip Hall answered Tom Landry that question. He was the C sports figure. He loved to chat. About. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Skip may have met him once, but he mentioned Landry. Um, who, who's a living sports figure that you'd love to chat with or interview? Boy, that's great. You know, um, uh, this is going to surprise you, but uh, uh, the coach of the uh, uh, the uh, New England Patriots. Um, Belichick. Belichick. His name's come up. Yeah. 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 You know, and you know why? Because, you know, here's, here's my, my, my answer to that is a relentless pursuit of perfection. And I think ultimately I adopt a lot of what he, from what I've heard from what he does, which I believe that um, I talk about first downs. And he, you know, and, and it's really, and I think about life in regard to first downs. It's like one thing after another, after another, and you build. It's not about throwing the bomb. It's not about the exotic plays. It's about the, the game is about successive first downs and building. In a, and, and my life is like that. Yeah. And, and I think that's where he understood the mechanics of the game. And he, I think he's, um, you know, he's a little taciturn. Um, and, uh, but, but he's, uh, uh, but he's also, you know, ever from every other, you know, he's a, a tremendous individual and a, a consummate professional. And I'm sorry if there's a little drilling noise in the background right now. So, so oh, I can't hear it. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. All right, Jim. Um, who is a legal figure, a living legal figure? It can be a private practice lawyer, attorney. It can be an attorney general, a U.S. Supreme Court justice that you love to chat with. And who's a deceased figure in the law you would have loved to have spent some time with and chat with? Um. Well, that's interesting. Um, gosh, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, 
I think Louis Brandeis or Thurgood Marshall have been fascinating to chat with. Yeah. William Howard Taft. Uh, we share birthdays. He was born on September 15th. Um, he occupied both uh, the position of, of, of president and I believe chief, chief justice. I think um, he would have been an interesting person. There's a podcast on Taft, coincidentally. So, yeah. Um, so I, I think actually he would have been a very interesting individual. Right. And I and, and really, really one of the um, a kind of a hinge point of history, his presidency. He's really one of the uh, uh, less noted, really only noted because of his weight, really. Uh, but you sort of, you know, in between, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 Teddy and uh, and Wilson, T.R. and, and Wilson, uh, and the the uh, the times that he was uh, navigating through. But you know, legal figure, he would right. have been interesting. Taft was an interesting. And who's a living legal figure you love to chat with? It could be anyone—a private practice lawyer, Supreme Court justice, a, a current or prior attorney general, all sorts of names. Um. Gosh, that's a great question. Um, maybe, um, uh, you know, I was in an elevator once with uh, Scalia. Uh, we were, uh, well, my wife and I were, uh, I, it was, so it's not Scalia, but my wife and I were in an elevator in New York and, and he got on uh, one floor beneath us and, and uh, I said, good morning. And he goes, well, what's, what's good about this morning? So he was a, <laughs> he was a funny guy. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I would say to, maybe I have current, to steal that line. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's uh, he was funny. Uh, and I was I was I was just about to say, you know, I was about where to do those. You know, we're we're you know Jim and Wendy from you know from Washington State, and I I, I opted not to bother him. Um, you know, maybe the current chief. Um, uh, I, I you know maybe uh, the current Roberts. chief justice. Yeah, he yeah. Did. John Roberts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, I got about three more questions for you, Jim. Um, who's a deceased political figure in history you would love to have interviewed or chat with? And who's a living political figure you'd love to interview or chat with? Ah. Um, TR, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, there's, there's a reason why, you know, if you think about all that he accomplished and all that he did, he was a complicated person, um, uh, frenetic, um, thoughtful, uh, went against type, you know, they put him on the vice presidency because the New York people didn't want to see him anymore. They figured that, you know, political careers go to die in the vice presidency. He was and, a big hunter too. That's right. That's right. But one with honor as well. That's uh, the, you know, they didn't uh, re classically refused or, you know, famously refused to shoot a, a tied up animal. I, uh, he was a big hunter, uh, but, but more and more, more importantly, he was a great thinker um, and he accomplished a tremendous amount, but actually more so because he, re he preserved uh, the national parks. Uh, he was actually a true progressive, um, and and really the progressive movement in regard to labor and food uh, safety and and the the national parks, which was one of the greatest things America's ever produced. You know, the Constitution, jazz music, and and uh, the national park system are some of the greatest things we've ever put uh, put out. So definitely TR. But uh, here's absolutely. the problem. Here's the problem. When, yeah. With TR in the room, you couldn't get an edge in. You couldn't get a word in an edgewise. So you just have to listen. Right. I've, I, I read some accounts about, about him being a strong personality. And who's a living political figure you'd love to interview or whose brain you like to pick? Henry Kissinger. Uh, really the father of, uh, not the father, but the architect of, of you know, post-war, uh, post-Vietnam. Uh, you know, and re frankly, actually, he was, uh, he did his doctoral dissertation on Metternich. Um, after the, the Congress of Vienna in 1815. And that's really, I think he, he, he fashioned himself a modern Metternich. Um, so I, I, I've done a lot of reading on him. I think, uh, you know, certainly I think uh, he would be a fascinating person to sit down with, and especially uh, the triangular diplomacy that he, um, well, and actually, you know, there's a, there's a lot of scholarship that Nixon felt so much uh, 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 rivalry essentially with with Kissinger, but he couldn't fire him. He was his only star. So I think that Kissinger would, and he was really the only one that survived. Uh, you know that horrible, um, you know the, the Watergate uh, fiasco, you know a, a tragedy. Uh, so um, for our country and it, what what it put our country through. So I think he would be someone I I would really because not only did he have the perspective of growing up um, uh, in his really early years in uh, in Germany. Um, but the perspective of, of all that he accomplished in regard to Middle East peace and, and uh, uh, the peace in Vietnam eventually um, and, and the current state of affairs. 
almost 100 years old, Henry Kissinger. He definitely has his detractors, but he would be a fascinating guy to talk to. He would well, be. this will probably be my final question. Jim, what a fun, what a fun uh, interview today. Uh, what's your favorite sports movie? Oh, God. I just got right to Google. I got to feel the dreams. But frankly, actually, but Bo, I can't answer this question without saying uh, uh, Rocky, Rocky II. Frankly, I got the idea to walk on Husky football um, watching that movie as a kid. Um, that's when I realized I was going to walk on Husky football was watching Rocky II. Yeah, what a lot of fun. What a great hour. Thanks for hanging out a little longer today. Thanks for coming on Sports Untold. You and I will be in touch and good luck in your, your uh, race for King County Prosecutor and your continual duties as mayor of Federal Way and with your family and everything. And thank you for, for doing this. Thanks for having me, Paul. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Great questions. Okay. Thanks, Jim. We'll be in touch. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank